0: Thank you University Singers and Guest Conductor Lindsey Armstrong for that moving piece. It's my honor to introduce our speaker for the morning, Dr. Don Jacobson. He's no stranger to the Northwest having been born in a place called Spokane. He attended church school in Yakima Academy at Upper Columbia Academy before coming to Walla Walla College where he graduated in 1955, making him a sterling member of the 60-year honor class. Don later earned two master's degrees from Andrews University, as well as a doctor of ministry degree from Howard University in Washington, D.C. He served as a pastor in Pendleton, Oregon, Clarkston, Washington, and Fairbanks, Alaska, and later taught at Andrews University in the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary. Along the way, Don has served as ministerial director in Southeast Asia and as pastor again in Stone Mountain, Georgia. In a wise return to the Northwest, Don served as president of the Oregon Conference, then later administrative assistant to the president of the North American Division, president of Adventist World Radio, and field secretary of the General Conference. About 10 years ago, Don began writing children's books for parents. For the last five years, he's also written a syndicated newspaper column for parents. The title of his most recent book is Rare Kids, Well Done, though you vegetarians may just miss the play on words in that title. (laughs) Most recently, he has served as designated driver for his wife, Ruthie, who graduated from Walla Walla College in 1958. Many of you will Realize that uh, Ruthie needs his good skill as a driver since she serves as the director of prayer ministries for the North American division. Don counts his service as a pastor as his great, greatest honor during this career of his. Don and Ruthie are parents to two, grandparents to two, and great-grandparents of four. Don, thank you for being with us today. It's an honor to have you here.
1: Wow, it sounded there for a while like I could never keep a job. <laughs> it's what happens when, when the person that is introducing you has known you too long. <laughs> I have the sense that we've got a mic problem. Is that true? OK, are we going to need this one? No? OK. I, I, hear, I hope you hear a hum in the background. If you don't, I've got trouble. <laughs> Is it all right? If you can't hear me, listen harder. <laughs> I could tell you a funny story. Um, yesterday, as I was going from where I had parked my car, to the airport in Atlanta uh, on a shuttle bus. The only ones on the bus were, besides me, was the driver, <clears throat> Big Dude, Bubba. In Atlanta, just about everybody is named Bubba, <clears throat> and there was one gentleman sitting behind me. But um, we were traveling along toward the airport, and just the driver and I struck up a conversation, and. And we were talking about the weather and all that stuff, and he said, uh, well, where are you headed today? And I said, well, I'm going to a place called Walla Walla University. He said, Walla Walla University, where is that? I said, you mean to tell me that you have never... I mean, here's a school they like so well they named it twice, and you've never heard the name? <laughs> and he said, where is it? I said, it's in Walla Walla, Washington. He said, you know what that reminds He said, you know where I would expect to see that? I would expect to see that at Disney. <laughs> what? He said, it sounds like a, ri- a new ride at Disney. Walla, 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 walla. Go to the- you know, they got the small, small, small world, and they got the walla, walla, walla ride. <laughs> but, you know, I got to thinking about that after, he- after we- I got off and got my bags and stuff. Because there are some similarities between Disney and Walla Walla. I wrote down a bunch of them. I'm not going to give you all of them, I promise. And you'll be glad for that. If Disney keeps raising their prices, it'll soon cost about as much to get into one as the other. (laughs) So there So see there are some similarities you're about as exhausted at the end of the day here as there. (laughs) It's so far to walk from one event to the other, to the next one, you get healthier just being on campus. (laughs) Ladies, do you know how far it is from Foreman Hall to Sittner? In the snow? (laughs) Strong students. Number four. (laughs) I couldn't, I couldn't have read this one when I was a student here. The permanent characters are a little bit eccentric in both places. <laughs> Those who work hard to get what they came for really get their money's worth. And this one. At the end of your stay in either place, you can hardly wait to get back home to mom and dad. (laughs) You know, a school is not a place, a school is a community community of people with sophisticated information, but whose passion is not just to hand on the facts but to make sure that something happens to the student as well. They're not teaching math. They're teaching young adults. You come to college, they tell me for three three main reasons, master, mate, and mission. I got all of those here. I will be forever Grateful for what was at that time Walla Walla College and what has now become Walla Walla University. When I had the opportunity to move among a community of people who had committed themselves to handing off not only what they knew, but what they were, because they understood all so well that to that to educate the head and not the heart only increases the ability of the scholar to do evil. That's the difference in Christian education. I am thankful for this place, and I'm thankful that we'll have eternity to hear the stories of the people whose lives were changed here, who went out to change their world, for Christ. Um, Your president mentioned that uh, we have two sons. The younger one is here today. I almost can't say young anymore in the same sentence. Our older son will be 60 this year. Um, His younger brother is 58. That's almost not young anymore, although it's a lot younger than it used to be. Um, even though he's here today, he's not an alum. And I feel badly about that, but let me, let me tell you why. Um, at the time he was ready for um, college, we didn't live nearby, and so he ended up going to a school that was closer. Now, it probably would not be wise for me to tell you which one it was. But I will just say that it's in the southern part of the United States. (laughs) Not Southern California, not Texas, but… What, did you figure that out? (laughs) The southern part of the… Oh, one one more thing, and then we got to get down to business here, but do you know why the mess on the streets out here it's my understand? I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but is my understanding that the person who is in charge of street repair in, in Whitman County is on the payroll of PUC? <laughs> <laughs> Some of you get that on the way home. It's, <laughs> it's 22 miles from Capernaum, to Nain. And Jesus, with a large crowd, Now I don't have any idea how many that is, walking with him, walking 22 miles, it probably wasn't 10,000 people, but maybe, what, 100? Walking with him the 22 miles from Capernaum to Nain. I, I want to read that story again with you, and I'm not going to read it through, but we're going to kind of work through it today. If you have your Bible or access to one, would you turn to Luke chapter 7, the one that was just read for us a few moments ago. This this is an incredible story. This is an incredible story. Written by a physician 2,000 years ago. It's a great prescription. Verse 11, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. So they've been walking now for 22 miles. How long, how long do you suppose it had been? What time of day was it? Well, if they started in the morning, 22 miles. What do you walk? Three or four miles an hour. So it's what? Early afternoon, mid-afternoon? Some of us were along. It was getting along toward evening. Um, and they approach... The, by the way, wouldn't you have liked to have walked along with him on that trip? I, I'd love to have just, just watched him. Watch how he talked to the kids. And walked, watch how he talked to old people. I'm especially interested in that. Um, to, at, to, to watch how he answered questions, even ugly questions, even cynical questions, to show, to, uh, to, to see how uh, how how respectful he was to those who were not respectful to him. We could have learned. So I think that's why. Um, Revelation 14, that passage that we're all familiar with, it talks about a group of people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I want to be in that crowd, right? Are you too? It doesn't matter where He goes, where He sends me, where He leads me, whatever the assignment, whoever He puts me with, whatever friends He assigns me. Some friends we choose, some are assigned. You know that. It doesn't matter. I want to go... Do you want to be in that group too? Let's do something right here. Would would you just take a moment of silent prayer? You guys up here, man, you blessed us with your music this morning. Thank you so much. Um, Would you take just a moment and, and, and silently talk to the Lord about your desire to follow him anywhere he leads? whether you want to be, that you want to be in that group that follows the Lamb wherever He leads, would you just take a few moments of silence and talk to the Lord about that phrase, they followed the Lamb everywhere He went. God, that's our desire too. We, we really want to be in that group. On this earth, wherever you lead us, because we want to be able to walk by your side hereafter as well. What a, what a marvelous invitation. We accept it today again. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to see what happens here because the story takes a fascinating turn here. Verse 12. As he approached the town gate, city of Nain, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. Now, there's there's a bunch of stuff going on here. Number one, we know something about her immediately because she's a widow lady, so she knows what grief feels like she knows what suffering is about she's on her way out to the seminary, cemetery it's only a half a mile out there still there you can still walk out there today if you're brave and uh, she she has been that road before because she followed a coffin just about like this one carrying her husband and she's been out there about every day since to mourn to weep to grieve over the loss in her life and that when she goes back home at night and lies down in her bed the place beside her is cold and, and that all of that grief is all wrapped up in the word widow, especially in that country. There was no social safety net. There was no social security. And that gives color to the rest of the story here because it says it was her son that was in the casket. They had just come from the funeral home. And here is, she's following now, not her husband this time, but her son out to that same cemetery. They'll be buried side by side. We don't know much about this boy. He's mentioned four times in the story, called something different each time. We don't know much about how old he is, except in a little biography of Jesus called Desire of Ages is this one sentence that gives us a little bit of, of color, a little bit of of, of ambiance to the story. It says that part of the grief that she was enduring was the fact that she had lost this young man who was going to be part of her support. Ah, so he wasn't. this wasn't a toddler. This wasn't a baby. This wasn't a middle schooler. This was a young adult. This was a college kid who had died overnight, and she was following his casket out to the cemetery to be buried next to her husband. So the, it, that really moves the, the emotion meter in this story. We discover some of, of the background of what's going on. Listen. A dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Now, the same term. The group came with Jesus was a large crowd, and the group coming with the mother from out of the city was a large crowd. So let, let's just ballpark that at 100 people each. I have no idea if that's true, but it's probably reasonable. So you've got a couple of hundred people milling around in this intersection at the gate, the main gate, going into the city of Nain. Tall stranger, surrounded by admirers and others, and a grieving widowed mother who has just lost, laid her only son to rest. And those two groups, now watch this, watch God's choreography here these two groups meet at the city gate. I'm going to ask you a question. Could Jesus have known that this lad was sick and come to her side the night before when she sat by his bed, rubbing his forehead with a cool cloth, holding his hand, praying to God that he wouldn't die? Could Jesus have come there and healed this boy? Of course. That's no problem then how come it's the next morning and he's dead? See, God doesn't care if we ask why as long as we are satisfied with his answer or satisfied if we don't get one. A little faith will take your soul to heaven. A lot of faith will bring heaven to your soul. And that's what's going on here. How often you and I have knelt by our beds or driving down the road or wherever we were and said, Come on, God, why? Why did this happen this way? There isn't a one family in this room or watching that has not been touched by the agony of separation or disappointment or loss or some other horrendous. Come on, God, where are you? Don't you listen when I call? God says, yeah, you got to trust me here. There's some parts of the story you can't know yet, but you will. Meanwhile, please trust me. Please trust me. Stories like this are some of the reasons that we learn some of the places we learn that we can trust Him. 200 people milling about in that intersection, 4th and College Avenue, Main Street, the city of Nain. A large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, His heart went out to her. Now, that's a figure of speech, of course, I mean, it wasn't literal, so it was an expression meaning that it, it really moved him. You see, he, he knew enough of the story that he knew that this mother was representative of, of the whole, of all the pain that sin has caused. You know, he could read in her face, he could read in her actions, in the stoop of her shoulders that this is what sin does. And if, if, if Luke were going to write this in English today, he might say, and as Jesus looked at her, it was such a horrendous experience. It was like he'd been kicked in the gut. I don't think we do injustice to the thread of the story to kind of reinterpret that as, as we might think it probably happened. Because he could see as he could at the Garden of Eden when that first man and woman walked out of the garden. And God knew. And he said, i got to do something about this. I want you to watch what happens here. He said to her, don't cry. Hmm. Yeah, right. We say that. We use that. You know, I know, honey, you lost your dolly, but don't cry. We'll get another one. Or, oh, honey, I'm so sorry your puppy got run over, but let's go down to the pound and, and we'll get another one. Don't cry. Your husband ran off with his secretary? Ah, don't cry. There'll be another one along pretty soon. (laughs) like buses. But see, Jesus... Listen, Jesus can say that to her because he can fix it. There is no problem no heartache, no disappointment that ever catches God by surprise. He has never met a problem he couldn't solve. In my journey, I find the most, one of the most difficult decisions I have to make is whether I'm going to believe that and leave it with God and go on my way rejoicing, whether I'm going to accept his counsel, don't cry, It's all right to cry. Jesus wept, after all. But he didn't spend his life weeping because it was a life soaked in joy, joy of the promises he knew would be fulfilled. I love this. He gets better. He went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. There are a lot of stories in the New Testament about Jesus and his touch. He touched the blind man. He touched the leper. You know, you can read those stories over and over again. And they're put there for us so that we will know that we serve a God who can fix it. He's a God who loves to fix broken things. And when Adam and Eve walked out of the garden, he said, we've got a mess on our hands here, but we can fix this. And the angel said, how are you going to do that? And the Father said, you'll never believe this. They they forfeited their right to eternal... They've messed things up so bad that they they no longer have access to a joy-filled eternity. But my son is going to go and take their place. I want you to read... One of the most amazing... See, I, I've, been, I've, been, I've been trying to get my mind wrapped around this for a lot of decades, and I, I've just begun the quest. But I want to share with you one of the most profound sentences I think it's ever written in the English language. Again, it's from that, from that little biography, Desire of Ages. And right in the middle of the book, right? Just let the book fall open right in the heart of the book, The Desire of Ages, is this sentence. This is astonishing. Listen to this. Jesus did not count heaven a place to be desired while we were lost. He didn't even want to be there unless you were. You know, we we can't say, whoa, that's just like this, because it's not just like anything. Jesus did not count heaven a place to be desired while we were lost. He said, I I can't leave them to what they deserve. I care too much about them. I'm going to do whatever it will take, whatever it will take, because I want them with me. I know they make mistakes. They make promises they don't keep, and they they make New Year's resolutions that don't last into April. That's okay. I love them anyway. Why don't you just start over, make a new planet, and rewrite the script? No, no, no. I love those people down there. So much so I'm going to go live among them, show them how to live, Show them how important they are to me by by dying in their behalf. Jesus didn't even want to be there without you. Thank you, God. Thank you for that insight. He went up, touched the coffin. Those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, you know, I'm glad he called him that. If he had just said, get up, every grave in that cane, I mean, that name cemetery would have opened. He's the life giver. He could, that's no problem for him. Remember at the gravesite of Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Otherwise, every you know, he would have opened all the graves. In one of these days, he's going to do that. We have this hope. that helps us smile and trust when the way is long and weary and our bleeding feet get sore. Don't cry. I'm going to write the last chapter here, God says. Young man, I say to you, get up. And in a, in a, in a, Typical New Testament understatement. It says simply, he sat up. I, I love the way you read that, that passage. Was it read the scripture here? He sat up. I mean, no trumpet and shamad, no brass band. It was just, sit up, young man, you who are dead. So he did. See, that's the kind of God we serve. There is no issue he can't solve on his timetable And that's why faith is important, because I've got to trust that even though I can't see the answer, even though it seems impossible, I trust the one who wrote the book. Now, the last part of verse 15. Jesus gave him back to his mother. If you have ever laid a loved one down in the valley of the shadow, that statement rocks your socks. Because you can see, swings his feet over the edge of that coffin, stands up, and they embrace there in the middle of the intersection of Fifth and Main in the city of Nain. I want you to do something with me. As they're standing there, embracing, you can be sure. I want you to walk around behind him so you can look in her face. I don't care what art galleries you have ever visited, anywhere on this planet, I I doubt that you've ever seen an artist's rendition of the mother's face here. It would be pretty difficult to capture that emotion on a piece of canvas. All she had was gone. She had lost everything. Her true love, her son, her, her means of support, her hope for tomorrow. she had nothing left. And Jesus fixed it. Would you take just a moment and talk to him about that, about your trust? In him, about your faith that he is able and willing and eager to do that in your circumstance, do whatever that is. Would you take just a moment and, in silence, talk to him about that? Dear God, these stories are here for us on whom the ends of the world are come. You you knew we would need a fresh infusion of faith and hope and courage. And so you, you recorded the life of our Savior here so we would know, so we would know about him. So he would, we would know what he could do and how he... And, and so, Lord, this morning, we're, we're just going to trust that to you. There are people here who are at a point in their lives when they really don't know what your will is for them. They want to do what's right. They want to follow your leading. They want to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, but they're not sure what that is right now. Lord, would you be their sufficiency? There's some here who are saying, I made some bad choices along the way. Most of my life is behind me. Oh, God, show them. It's never too late, that you're always there, that you never forsake us, you never leave us. This is not just plan B. This is infinite number of alphabets. You'll take us any, any way you can get us, Lord. We're yours. Thank you, Father. Thank you for hope. Thank you for hope. Amen. Amen. Now, we've got to finish this, but the story isn't over. Verse 16, they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God, listen to this. I I love the NIV. This is the New International. I love this this phrase in the NIV. God has come to help his people. Do you know the majority of people in the world don't understand that? Christians as well as non Christians. I was talking with a neighbor some time ago over the back fence, and he said, he found out I was a pastor, and he said, Well, you know, I probably ought to go to church, but there's so much stuff I'd have to give up. What do you, what do you say to somebody who is there in their journey? See, he he doesn't understand. He doesn't ask us to give up. He says, I've got so much more to give you. Your hands aren't going to be able to hold that stuff you had before, stuff you thought you liked. You're not going to be able to... You don't have pockets enough, man, for what I want to do in your life. God has come to help his people. Can, can we do one more sentence together? I think we have it on the screens from Christ Object Lessons. I love this. This is our mission. This is our assignment. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of His character of love. Now, that includes the Sabbath because He's the Creator. It includes what happens when you die because what kind of God would cook somebody forever? But see... it's, It's when it's embedded, when who He is is embedded in our hearts and it helps us be like Him and then we become emissaries. We become missionaries of the message that's to go to the world. And that is, what kind of God is there? What's He like? What a great assignment. I want to tell you a story. Michael Brady was a Hollywood stunt man. In fact, we probably would call him a daredevil. I'm sure his mother had gray hair when she was 18 or whatever, when he was born. Um, He's good-looking dude, isn't he? Um, He he took part in the Guinness Book of World Records parachute jump over Chicago, the largest group of of parachutes ever to free fall, in history, 294 people all at the same time out of, an air, out of airplanes. He was one of them. But he was a stunt man. He, You know, he had the, the tough ones. There was a, a fight on top of a three-story building. That's where you always have fights, right? And somebody gets shot and falls over. Well, it isn't the star. It was Michael Brady. Fall three stories into this pillow. You don't see that part. His signature stunt was to jump from a moving helicopter onto the top of a moving train. He'd done it several times, each time successfully because you don't do it twice if the first one wasn't successful. (laughs) But he was the utmost... He exercised the utmost care. Whenever he was going to do that kind of thing, he would go over and over and over the, the details of it. And, and this day when he was scheduled to do the shoot, jumping from a helicopter onto a moving train, he went out to the siding where the train car was parked. You don't park a train car. Where the train car was and climbed up on top to make sure that everything was exactly right where he was going to land, that there was a place for his hands, place for his feet, that it was all bolted to the roof of the train car. I mean, everything had, had to, because you don't make any mistakes in this business. As he was climbing down from the top of the train car, he fell and struck his head on that cast-iron coupling between the two cars and suffered severe brain trauma. They airlifted Michael to um, a medevac center nearby, trauma center, tried desperately to stabilize his vitals and, and keep him alive. He lived for five days, and he died. The physicians discovered that he was a registered organ donor. And so when it became evident that they were not going to be able to save his life, they began to Crude term, they began to harvest the organs that were still operating. The person next in line for the heart, because Michael Brady was an athlete, the one in line, next in line for the heart, was a man by the name of Bill Wall. Now, Michael Brady was 36, Bill Wall was 58, so there's 22 years between them. I think that's the right number. Uh, I, I didn't take math while I was here. So um, <laughs> So they got Bill Wall, WOHL, wall, Bill Wall, and Michael Brady's heart together, and discovered that the systems were all a match. So they proceeded with a very complicated surgery, to put Michael Brady's heart in Bill Wall's body. Almost immediately. Um, Bill began to, to stir, to move, the color began to come back in his extremities, and, and it became evident that, that the transplant was indeed a success. Before long, they had Bill Wall sitting up on the edge of the bed. And pretty soon they had him walking down the hallway. You know how they do it with the bottles and tubes and all the rest. And before long, M- Bill Wall went home healthy. He decided that as a tribute to the donor, the one who had given him, Bill, a new life, that he was going to change the way he'd been living. So he stopped the, the hurtful health practices and all the bad habits that had gone along with that and so on and began to take serious thought about his health. It wasn't long before he was able to walk up and down the block out in front of his house. And it wasn't long before he jogged a few steps, and then a few days later he'd jog a few more, and it wasn't long before he was able to run the whole block. One day he said to himself, I think I'm going to run a marathon. And the doctors weren't sure, and his wife wasn't sure, but he began to, to train, he began to jog and and run. And finally the time came. <clears throat> and he enlisted, signed up, registered for the marathon. And he ran it. He didn't win it. But he completed well you're a winner if you just complete a marathon, aren't you? <laughs> Twenty-six miles. Yeah. One day the phone rang at Bill Wall's home and he picked up the phone, and a voice on the other end of the line said, "Um, are you Mr. Wall? Yes, I am. Well, we are relatives of Michael Brady. Can we, we'd like to meet you. Can, Can we, could we come by your house? And he said, well, of course, that'd be a tremendous honor for me. So a couple of days later, Van stopped out in front, and Bill looked out through the curtains, and saw them getting out of the van, and, and there was apparently uh, Michael Brady's brother, Chris, and his father and mother and, and a couple of other relatives. They came up, rang the doorbell, Bill went to the door and opened it. Just a little awkward for a moment, you know, to, to realize what was actually going on here. But they came in, and, and they talked for a while, quite a long while, and, and finally... Mr. Brady, Michael's father, said, "Bill, I I have a I have a favor to ask you." He stood up and took a stethoscope out of his pocket and put the earpieces in. He said, "I I I, would would you let would you let me listen to my son's heartbeat?" Bill Wall said, "I'd I'd be honored." So he unbuttoned his shirt. Michael Brady's father came up and put the the cold piece on his chest and listened. The takeaway from that story to me is this. When God puts his stethoscope on my heart, on my, on my chest, I want him to hear the heartbeat of his son. When God puts his stethoscope on your chest, I know you want him to hear the heartbeat of his son. Would you pray with me, dear Lord? I want to thank you for this simple story. We've read it so many times. It's so rich. We, we learn so much about the kind of God we serve. Lord, we've prayed a little scripture today. That's really powerful. Show us how to do that so that you talk to us and we talk to you, and that communication deepens, becomes more real. And more transformational for us. Because, Lord, when you put your stethoscope on our chest, we want you to hear the heartbeat of your son. Amen.